Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through candid conversations about cyber issues. Sponsored by Agency, with your host, Kath Nibbs. Welcome to this week's episode. Since we recorded this episode, uh, there had been uh, the Jacksonville shooting, and one of the things I want... Welcome to this week's episode. Uh, Last week was Gaming for Good and this week is another Gaming for Good kind of idea and um, unfortunately since we recorded this, which happens to be uh, some time ago, there had been the Jacksonville uh, incident. Um, For those of you that do know, I do do a Tech Tuesday on uh, Cyber Trauma and Young People Facebook page. Um, And I talked about that on there um, because I was just really interested in how social media reacted to it. Um, Mainly some of the academics um, in terms of uh, those that conducted themselves online in a way that evidence was very, very uh, bare minimum and how they kind of reacted to other academics really kind of put me back into this place where... um, I think I'm really lucky in the, the role that I have, which isn't quite fully immersed in the academic world, that I get to speak to lots of other practitioners and I get to speak to you by doing this podcast. Um, so I may speak to somebody about the Jacksonville incident at some point. Um, I may not. I am going with Gaming for Good and today uh, with Adam LaBelle. And we talk about kind of user experience, mental health issues, well, emotional regulation, actually, um, and mental health kind of uh, the direction of games. Um, So hop on on to the um, episode and I hope you really enjoy it. I I had a blast. And also pop over to www.com patreon.com forward slash cyber synapse sign up and become one of my patreons and you will be privy to uh, elite information on there and also uh, don't forget to rate and subscribe on itunes stitcher anchor or whatever platform you're listening from Um, this is how other people can find this podcast we are coming towards the end of season one uh, and I am going to have a little bit of a break so we might have one or two more episodes before we end um, and I look forward to seeing you soon bye-bye welcome to cyber synapse this week I'm joined by Adam LaBelle Adam is currently over in uh, Montreal and he is a psychology researcher with uh, an interest in mental health around gaming uh, I'm not even sure what we're going to talk about today, uh, as we've just said. So, you know, welcome to the podcast, Adam. And why do you do what you do? Thanks. Just a quick clarification. Indeed, it's a psychology background, but my, my, my work is technically what we call a games user researcher. And uh, maybe before I explain what I do, I might want to unpack that for some of your, your listeners. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to kind of, I guess the simple, the simple way of describing it is... Uh, Game designers have an, have an idea of how they want uh, players to experience the things that they've made in the game. And my job is to check with the players based on their experience, how well their experience matches with the design. And when it's matching well, to give designers, well, these are the design aspects of the design that worked in your favor. And when it's not going well, these are the aspects of the design that didn't work in your favor. And, and give them as much, empower them as much as I can to make the design decisions that bring them closer to their intention. Yep. And why do I do that? Because I love video games, I love research, and I love 
like working with people and in very kind of uh, high paced environments. So yeah. all those things are in my job and uh, that's why I do what I do. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'm uh, I've, again, the question I was going to ask you was just totally gone skewed off. So I'm going to go back to where we were talking uh, just before we started recording. Um, so user experience is actually really, really important. And I know that l lots of people don't actually understand what it is. So thank you for clarifying that because there is something about understanding that the gaming industry needs to know how people find the game and, and what kind of um, touch-ups they need. Um, because sometimes that's, that's where we end up having uh, rage outs, isn't it? You know, and it's, not, it's not easy to figure out. Um, okay. So I have a question about children and kind of their user experiences, but I'm going to put that to one side. Um, sure. do, you want to, do you want to walk us through your, your research career and how you've ended up where you are? Um, sure. So I am, yeah. I am okay. yeah. I'll try to give the Cliff Notes version. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The hour-long one that I gave you before we got on the call. Um, so uh, I started out studying psychology and uh, as a bachelor student uh, in Brooklyn, New York, where I'm from. And uh, I immediately took to the research side of, of, of that. And uh, after spending some time at the University of Amsterdam, I discovered I, it really cemented the idea of like research psychology being attracted to me and uh, suiting my strengths. So I went to mm -hmm. master's in, in Amsterdam, a research master's, a two-year program where um, I was working in social psychology, so I was studying things about emotions. I was always, I guess, interested in social and emotional uh, research. Yeah. Uh, so I did two years of that. I did some research on emotions like shame and humiliation. It's very, very interesting stuff. Like, was yeah. was, was really, yeah. And um, I had grown up my whole time playing video games. I was always uh, a video game player. Um, and then during the time of my master's, it was something that took a major backseat while I was uh, studying. And fulfilling my career aspirations to becoming like a, a psychology researcher, getting a PhD. And when trying to find a PhD, I <coughs> learned about uh, somebody in uh, the Radboud University in Nijmegen, a city in the Netherlands. And she was, uh, her name is Isabel Granik, and Isabel was looking to start doing research about the benefits of video games for social and emotional development. And this is a, yeah, that was like an amazing moment in my life because it was, the moment where I realized it was possible to marry this childhood hobby of mine with my career aspirations. Yeah. And um, when I met Isabel, I discovered not only was, you know, she trying to bring those two worlds together, but she was trying to do it, what, at least in, as far as I can say, was the best way or the right way. Yeah. And um, she, I, she, she still works in this area, and she has a very good, and even then on an intuitive level, had a very good intuition about how to uh, explore video games as a place for healthy social and emotional development, and then how to use video games as a vehicle for promoting healthy social and emotional development. And along the journey of me doing my PhD with her, uh, we created a network of designers and clinicians that allowed me to get immersed into the worlds of design a little bit, and the worlds of like, yeah. what it's like to be a clinical therapist, which is something I was very divorced from because I was like a researcher in my little research box. Um, and over the course of my PhD, uh, yeah, with, with getting immersed in all those things and also spending some time in Los Angeles where I was in a, uh, I was working out of a master's program that's designed to teach people theme design and video game design. And I experienced some mentorship with another 
yeah, kind of, I guess, visionary person in, in the field, Valentina Gotsis. I basically like uh, came to realize towards the end of my PhD that work that would involve more of the design as part of the research was something that was interesting to me more than just research. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that's when I discovered I wanted to do what I'm doing now and kind of the last little bridge to, to make it from the academic world after getting my PhD to what I'm doing now within the games industry at Ubisoft was that I spent a year working in Switzerland at the uh, University of Geneva with a woman named Andrea Samson. It's all women are my, my uh, mentor. Yeah. Yep. I've had like a career of, of, of women teaching me stuff. Um, but uh, we, we, we spent a year together uh, designing board games to teach children about their emotions. So it was a year where I got to put myself in the shoes of a designer so that I can understand. Uh, and when a researcher is communicating to a designer, what are the designer's, um, well, obligations and what are, their, what are their challenges? And therefore, how do you, how, how to communicate with, with people on that side of the aisle? So I spent a year doing that and um, landed up here. Yeah. Uh, oh, it wasn't the Cliff version, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, again, head fizz in terms of... Um, so what I will do is I'm going to come back to um, like the idea of board games. So uh, for, for listeners and, and viewers of uh, this podcast, I have been talking about gaming uh, for a while in lots of different ways. So I've done interviews with Pat Markey about violent games do not produce violent children. Um, I've talked with Tony Bean about using the therapeutic... Uh, versions of games and and so on um so how did you get from board games to gaming games and and the reason i'm asking this is because this is the part that i'm really trying to educate people in uh in Mm -hmm. in this country but this is this is really interesting in terms of uh why is a board game so different to a a video game uh and i mean i don't know whether we're going to start calling them internet games anymore or or, there's just so many different um labels Mm -hmm. for them isn't there so Mm -hmm. yeah board board games and gaming games yeah, um, the the board game project, like the reason why we were working in that space was was twofold. Well, threefold, I would say. One is uh, the resources available to us, and the second also is my own expertise. And then the third was the actual constraints of the project. So the, the actual goals of the project we were working on, it made perfect sense to do stuff in board games, and I think that's the part that's going to really answer your question. But it was also the case of, um, me not being a video game designer and the fact that in video games you need a lot of uh, technological and technical skills to mm-hmm. produce the game. Me not having it and us not having sort of the resources to have programmers on our project was almost kind of like a non-starter for us to, to, to be working in the board game space. But like I said, the goals of our project from the get-go, board games already made a ton of sense. So um, what were the goals of our project, right? The, the mystery yeah, yeah. of so, um, so Andrea was interested in bringing um, games into classrooms that would do anything within the realm of emotion regulation. So for any of your viewers who aren't familiar with that term, emotion regulation refers to anything that we do consciously or unconsciously uh, to influence this, our emotional states. So mm-hmm. it's a very big, broad umbrella term. And of course, we can then think about emotion regulation as have like patterns that are healthier and patterns that are less healthier, generally speaking, and also thinking about how, you know, just like anything, like it's, it's, it's hard to set rules and often the context and the flexibility of the person 
um, the person's emotion regulation skills are kind of be paramount. So the, the idea was basically to try to involve within the education system because in education we teach our kids hard skills and hard knowledge, hard facts, but we don't, we allow sort of the jungle to dictate purely the, 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 the soft skills, so to speak, and we don't really offer that much guidance. And um, so the idea was, okay, we have, a school, we, we have a school context and we want to train people to understand their emotions better and understand, at least empower them to uh, be able to regulate their emotions uh, because they, just by grounding them in a, with a little bit more knowledge about what they are and how they can control them. So that was sort of the mandate of the project. Uh, in bullet points, essentially, it's uh, games for classrooms that deal with emotion regulation. Um, and when we're talking about emotion regulation, and it just seems so obvious to us that you need the face-to-face -face interaction. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not to say that video games are not a great domain for training of emotion regulation skills. I did work on that in my PhD, and I, I believe in that very strongly. But um, when you're talking about a, a classroom setting and you're talking about some of the types of emotion regulation skills we became very interested in, it was very obvious to us that having a face-to-face -face connection uh, yeah. made just the most sense. And that's what you, you know, that's, that's something unique that board games afford us. Um, so that was, uh, that was why we went in that direction. Yeah. I, well, I was just thinking as you were talking, Adam, this is exactly what I spend my time teaching parents with their children is, is to pick up on the, the emotional cues that the child is giving and so on. But also, I think this is where, uh, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of my thinking now, I think this is where some children dysregulate when they're playing a game because maybe they weren't taught these skills beforehand in, in the early years. So in this country, we had something called um, SEAL, which stood for Social Emotional uh, Learning. And it, it's in some schools, um, it seems to have teetered off alongside um, the, the early years uh, support that, that was around. And actually now, this is where I think we're seeing the moral panic, isn't it, about children are not regulating themselves there. Although that's not how it's put in the media. They just say they've got addiction issues and they're, they're you know, depressed children, which... I'm going to frame it the other way around. Actually, this mm -hmm. is this is a whole cohort of children who mm -hmm. haven't been given all of these skills. Mm -hmm. So when they transition to the, the cyberspace, that's where they find the difficulties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I would surmise that's a that's a really good that's a really good hypothesis and way of thinking about it. Yeah, I, I think well, there's not enough emotion education, and it's nice that you mentioned SEL because kind of like the jump off point for me and my project was. Okay, uh, A, I need to now immerse myself in the world of board games, which the types of interactions in board games are very are, are quite unique compared to video games. And mm. having a video gamer, I hadn't really been exposed to board games that much. So that was one of my first jumping off points in my work. And then the second jumping off point was the SEL world, that is to say, um, the social emotional learning. Well, what are what are the um, uh, types of exercises? that they try to do with kids in the world of SEL and why, and which ones work and why. And that was, um, that was essentially my, my, my starting point with, uh, with, with the project, just trying to understand what is a good SEL program and why. In the United States right now, you have something called Ruler, which is, I think, starting really to take off out of Yale University. Mark Brackett like, runs that. So um, I think it's also catching on stateside. Um, 
um, this, this idea. Um, but then inevitably, if I can put myself in your shoes, comes the question of like, why games, right? If there's such a thing as an SEL program, if there's such a thing as a ruler program, and they're out there and there are good ruler programs with good exercises and good social emotional learning programs with good exercises, like why, why go through the effort of making a game? And uh, so yeah, why, why believe in the power of games? Um, and um, it was something that I kind of, from the beginning of the project myself, and of course Andrea, who said the project was whole her idea, mm-hmm. uh, believed in on an intuitive level and in a conversation at a coffee shop, we could say things like, um, um, you know, play is a kind of like a safe, comfortable space that also gives rise more naturalistically to emotions. Play is a space where um, we, um, well, yeah, we can leave it at that. You know, the first, I guess the first way of thinking of it was exactly that. It's children naturally interact in contexts of play. And if we want to uh, arouse emotional experiences and let that interact in, in educational ways and hopefully psychoeducational ways, then of course play is going to be better than like a traditional kind of looking homework assignment. That was the mm-hmm. jumping off point for, for us uh, on an intuitive level. So how, how do you, um, yeah, or how, what, let me go back one step. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm rushing. Um, I'm just thinking about, so how, how do we, as, as um, researchers, as practitioners, kind of get this message out that not all of these games are, are bad for mental health. So I've got, um, I've got quite a lot of people that tend to say, you know, yeah, but surely games have an impact on mental health. And, and it's trying to explain to people, actually, there are ways of children being able to engage in these. Um, and as mm-hmm. I said, when I was talking with Tony Bean, it's, it, that's what we do here. And I think he said he sometimes gets his, uh, what did he say he'd got? I don't know if he said he got an Nintendo. No, it wasn't a Nintendo DS. It might have been. Uh, it was an old console anyway. And he said, and he gets it out just so the children can learn um, uh, basically tolerance of their own emotions. And 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 this is what I'm thinking about. This is what I do with the children. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I play as a um, a therapy is actually what I engage in because it's how children can talk in metaphor. They can be uh, once removed from the actual impact of what it is mm-hmm. they're talking about, particularly because mm-hmm. I work a lot with trauma and quite often the computer game is enough to distract them slightly while we're talking about something else. So I actually have educational games around um, uh, nervous system regulation. So I've got heart rate variability software and um, games like that. So that these computer games that we're talking about aren't always um, the ones that you'll find on the Xbox or the PS4. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. pretty much, they are fairly simple and there is uh, an outcome to it. So I'm, I'm just thinking about, so what, what do you actually do in terms of the designing or working with, because um, you mentioned it earlier and I did say I'd bring it in, uh, that you're yeah. at Ubisoft. That's so, right. Yeah. So do you, want, do you want to talk a little bit more about what you do, as long as it's obviously not embargoed and you're not, you're not breaking any... Um... Yeah, I, I won't. Uh, yeah, I won't. Uh, I, I, th- thanks for that. And I won't... Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say what I, what's, what's comfortable and what's, what's fair. Um, so the thing with my work at Ubisoft is it's, it's no longer, you know, um, really in, in this area that we're talking about with, with, with games for mental health. Uh, it's, it's really limited to what I was saying before, empowering our designers. So... Um, again, yeah, I'm going to be kind of repeating what I was saying before, but basically, like, designers have an idea of how 
a system or a level or a character or a menu or anything inside their video game. How they have an intention of how players are supposed to experience it. And I'm helping them figure out what part of their design works and what doesn't work and why so that they can better their systems. And with video games and games in general, and this is something I encountered when I was doing design work in this games for mental health space, this games for good space, uh, when I was doing the board game stuff, um, like one of the big challenges is, is like, well, when you design a game, you're trying to design like uh, an environment of generally speaking, freedom and exploration. You you empower your, your user to do a lot of things. It's not like you're designing a website where there's like only so many places on the screen that you can click, or there's only so many ways that you can scroll down the website. It's like the, 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 the breadth of interactivity in video games is so wide, and also in board games, and in games in general, is so wide that it's, well, it's a huge challenge because again, a designer has like an intended general idea of how players use their system, but there are so many other ways that players can go to use their system and, and, and interpret things. Uh, and so it's about finding that like important line between, um, yeah, making... Talking about the ways in which, like, yeah, the design of video games and board games are so open-ended, and like, they give the user so much freedom that, like, it becomes very difficult to, uh, uh, yeah, to to design for both allowing the player to do whatever they want while also following this intended path. And um, Mariantina Gotsis, who, like I said, is a mentor of mine who I was working with in Los Angeles during my PhD, she said something like, "Game design is about creating." or biasing in a system, so creating a system or biasing in an existing system to promote uh, behavior in a target population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how, how academic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, so can we, can we? so much as a, as, a, as like a fledgling designer, it helped me so much. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. I'm creating a system or I'm, where I'm playing around with the system for a target behavior. Keep your eye on the prize. Like, what do you want your user to be doing? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, um, I, I love when I hear things operationalized because um, it, it's t- just vague terminology in this in this industry at the moment drives me absolutely crackers. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I like it when people say, this is what we're doing. This is the end result. Here we are. Um, it's almost like talking in E-Prime. Um, so I think for, for um, listeners, what I might say is, actually, what you're trying to do is get people to engage in a particular behavior through, through the intentions of the game. And the way you do that is pretty much like a, a rat in a maze. You, you steer them in a particular direction by creating um, menus and then kind of, I'm just thinking the types of games um, it's, it's almost like somebody gives the rules at the beginning for like for snap. So, so quite often I, I sit with children and we might play connect Four, snap, something like that. And what mm-hmm. I do is I let them tell me what rules they think mm-hmm. are, are, exist. And mm-hmm. that, that gives me an understanding about where they are cognitively, where they are um, a kind of their family script as well, you know, about who wins and who doesn't and what happens when people win. So I'm just thinking about how, yeah, how do you actually steer people then? Yeah, it's uh, it's very challenging. Mm. <laughs> um, um, because the, 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 
if I can articulate your point, I think just 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 a half a step further. It's 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 not just about step like you know pushing them to do a certain behavior, but it's it's also maintaining while maintaining the what I would call the sanctity of play, right? The 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 the, the, mm. the sense of play. It's a very fragile, delicate thing. Um, children know what play looks and feels like. And when, when you're doing something with them, which is education disguised in play and it, without being true to the philosophy of play, they know instinctively. Oh, immediately. Yeah. Amazing bullshit detectors. Um, when it comes to that, I mean, this is their domain. Children are yeah. the masters of the world of play. And, um, you know, we should all be so lucky to retain that mastery and uh, only hone that mastery through the course of our entire lives. Um, so um, so it, it, you have to also, to answer your question, you have to also um, understand what makes play play and not just yeah. what makes somebody do X, Y, Z, right? You can, get, you can get somebody to do X, Y, Z if you just give them the right type of reward, but to get them to discover for themselves that X, Y, Z is a good thing within the context of a freedom of choices, all which seem appealing and fun and interesting, that's a whole other order. Um, so what, it, like our process, and I, I, I don't know if I can have a stamp on this being the best process, but our, be our process was to immerse ourselves in the world of games and to try to understand what makes this game fun and what makes this game, uh, what behaviors is this game or what types of thinking is this game promoting as a means of success in the game. And then on the other side, looking at the, at the SEL stuff and saying, okay, what makes this skill important? And what, what makes this exercise worthwhile for this skill? And we just try to immerse ourselves in those spaces as much as we can to yeah. be able to cross tabulate where do they meet in the closest way possible. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking I wish we could do that with the e-safety stuff because the e-safety games that get developed, are, they're, they're blatantly obvious to the children and they'll go, I, I'm not playing that, Kath. I'm not playing right. that because that's about give you the standard, uh, standard answers, you know, the socially desirable ones. That's what you want me to say. Tap, tap, tap. And right. there, there is, yeah, there is something about the word fun. So uh, I'm, I, oh. I've trained in something called transactional analysis and I always talk about the, the child ego state. Mm -hmm. And it's about staying in that child ego state that helps you do the, the free, the free play, because mm -hmm. that's what, that's where learning happens. And I'm not going to go down the, the boring route of chatting about academia, but this, there's plenty of um, uh, research to actually show how and why children do what they do in terms of play. And mm -hmm. I think when, when you were talking, um, one of my friends is a gamer. Um, he's uh, 50 years of age and we regularly chat and he, he'll quite often say, I have Peter Pan syndrome. I haven't grown up yet. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's a lovely way to look at that's, that's actually how, how we keep doing this, isn't it? This is how we meet in the middle about mm -hmm. what makes a game fun. You mm -hmm. have to understand what fun is. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm, I'm just thinking about the kind of work that I do when I'm with uh, traumatized children, there's a lot of fun been taken out of their lives. So this is one of the reasons why I bring computer games back into the therapy room, because mm -hmm. for 50 minutes, they have fun. They get to play a game. And, uh, and it's really curious, actually, watching mm -hmm. how each child plays the game. 
so some of them some of them try to be um score the highest points some of them will go off a bit like a sandbox they'll go off and explore and it's mm-hmm. i'm just thinking about i've probably got 400 questions for you and and it's uh yeah so what when you are designing these games and thinking about the user experience mm-hmm. do you actually work with children and get kind of their feedback in terms of what what they consider fun yeah we needed to so um that, that was also an essential part of the project. So when I <coughs> came into the University of Geneva to, to make those games, uh, um, it was also with the understanding from day one that the, the university had a relationship with a, with a nearby school that was very open to collaborating with us. Um, and so our design process involved, like I said, immersing ourselves in as many games as possible to understand what thoughts and behaviors are they promoting as like a means of having fun and being successful in the game? What are the existing skills that are going on? And then to bring all of that together, uh, we would build prototypes on a basically a weekly basis. We would just have an idea. Let's build it as small and simple as possible. Another reason why board games are great because you can generally just scribble things down on some pieces of paper and play a prototype very quickly. Yeah. And once we were getting somewhere where we felt like, okay, we have a little bit of a prototype, we would bring that into a classroom of children who were registered with us for, I think it was every week, every week we would go in for an after-school program and play games with the kids. And early, in, early on in the project, before we had prototypes that we were confident with, we brought in games that we, we brought in existing games and saw, okay, how, is, uh, how are these children that are in our target age range, is like kind of nine to 11 years old age range, how are they interacting with these games and what makes these games fun for them and and just spending time with them and then eventually we were able to bring in our own prototypes to see okay uh are they interacting with our games in a very similar way of what we've been seeing with these off the shelf i mean like the things we were bringing into the classroom were pretty much the best of class games that are out in the board game market right now or right then so it's like okay are we stacking up to this and and are we all and while also seeing are we also cultivating the types of behaviors that we're doing. So uh, you absolutely need to, uh, uh, at least uh, from, from my perspective, it was essential for us to involve our users in our design process as early on as possible. Mm. I think they call it user-centered design. Okay. Um, um, yeah, I was th- when, when, you first sta- when we first started talking, actually, at the beginning of the podcast, and you'd said user experience, and I thought, actually, it reminded me of, um, was it Jamie Madigan, when he was talking to, uh, oh, who was he talking to? And they were on about user experience, and he said, what is it? What it? And it was like, how do you define this, this user experience? What is it? And again, it's that nebulous thing in, in cyberspace that nobody can put, put a de- definitive answer to. Um, I'm, I'm quite interested in when, once you've got these games, how do you find, um, and I'm not going to say selling them, but how do you find that they're taking them out into the public without the moral panic that, you know, we've been, we're constantly watching on uh, social media. Mm. How, do, how do you find the public, the parents take, take this game? That would be a great question for the person I was working with, Andrea, because I, I left the that I left the project just at the point where we had built things that we thought were very strong, like not I don't, don't want to say prototypes. I think we were further than just a, a prototype. We had we had what were pretty much fully cooked games, just that hadn't yet been, uh, you know, dolled up and prayed up, and and like the visual a lot of the visual aesthetic and some of the kinks of the, the game hadn't yet quite been worked out, but the, the game was there. 
Um, but uh, she has spent, uh, together with the master students that we were working together with, uh, about the last year doing some like research on it initially, bringing it into school, seeing, seeing, seeing how they were doing. So that would be something that, like, honestly, shame on me for not following up with her as, as much as I should have been, uh, to like understand, like, okay, where, where, where are these designs at, and are they gonna like see the light of day? Um, I think that um, it's a great question because the types of things that we were making, again, these are games mm -hmm. that are the spirit of play. That was a precondition about all the stuff that we made. Um, that are also educational slash psychoeducational. So selling it becomes a question of like, you kind of have two stakeholders in this. You have the schools and the parents who want to know that it's educational and that it yeah. works. And you have the kids who are like, yeah, I, don't tell me that you're trying to fix me and make me better. Just tell me you're giving me something fun. So navigating that minefield is not something that I had yet to engage with. So I don't really have a great answer to your question. Uh, yeah. Well, to be perfectly, you've summed it up beautifully there in terms of the agenda of the parent versus the agenda of the child. And that, that's generally where I end up kind of going, actually, this isn't about, <laughs> this isn't about your agenda to the parent. Yeah. It has to be educational, Kath. I, I do hope you're not playing computer games and just wasting your time. No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I'm, what, what are you up to? Yeah, what are you up to now? And, and what are your, you know, where are you in research, plans, anything that you're doing at the moment? So yeah, I'm trying to become the best games user researcher I can be. So uh, the world of games user research is vast in terms of the different types of user experiences that uh, game designers want tested, and in terms of the variety of methodologies that can be used, uh, tweaked, created to answer those questions. Mm. And uh, I'm just learning how to be the, like I said, the best user researcher I can be, uh, ramping up the best I can, um, and uh, providing my designers the, the the best feedback I possibly can for their designs. Yeah. Okay. Is uh, I'm just thinking, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you, you would have liked to have been asked? I think, I think we did a pretty good job covering everything. Um, um, I think for your users, like if for anybody that was really interested in any of these conversations, um, really look into the work of my PhD mentor, Isabella Granick. She does something in the Netherlands called the Gem Lab, that's Games for Emotional and Mental Health, G-E-M-H. Uh, like I said, Marangatina Gotsis, she works out of uh, USC in, uh, in Southern California and Los Angeles. She does great work about not necessarily just games, but like anything that's well, therapeutic, let's call them therapeutic experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, while, while certainly tapping into the power of games and play. Um, and then, of course, uh, yeah, Andrea Sampson, who I work together with. Um, another person who was very influential um, was uh, somebody also at USC, somebody named Jeff Watson. And he, uh, he came in and he did a workshop with us uh, during my PhD. And he stamped into my brain the insistence that play slash a game is by definition voluntary. And when he, when he gave that workshop and that became kind of like a recurring theme as we were developing games for, for the workshop, and he was, so, um, he was so kind of like strong and kind of passionate about this idea, like the, the academic in me felt like very resistant to it. Like, why do you make such like an ironclad rule it was coming across to me but it stuck with me because 
<clears throat> he's right, at least in my opinion. He's right. If it's not voluntary, if it doesn't feel like this is an activity that I want to be doing, it might be fun. It might be enjoyable. It might be all sorts of things, but it's not play. Don't lie to yourself about that. Yeah. And uh, look into his work. He's, he's a smart guy. Uh, that, that one sounds really interesting, actually, because there's something about um, children who are, and I'm going to do, do the inverted comma thing, uh, brought to therapy to be fixed. And, yeah. and that, that is the difference between when I work with adults is quite often mm. the adults bring themselves. Mm -hmm. And for children, they're, they're here. So quite often, that's why I give them, and I'm, I'm going to go with the word choice, because you talked about this earlier in terms of how, how you can choose to do something mm -hmm. in a game. And it's, mm -hmm. why, it's why I say here, what would you like to do? And we have a wander around the building and they can see, I don't know, for example, the sand tray, the toys, the puppets, the paint. And then obviously we go upstairs, there's the big bodywork room and there's the consoles. Uh, generally, generally, um, and I, I find quite often as well as a gender uh, difference that it tends to be the young the young boys that are like, oh, can I go on that cath? What what games have you got? What games have you got? Um, and that's that's actually what we do. Whereas the girls tend to do more creative painting and and things like that. Mm -hmm. So so that there's something I don't know if that'll be of interest to anybody making games, but there does tend to be quite a gender difference in how the children engage with stuff. Um, yeah. That, that being said, and certainly like research does like come to like uh, bring to bear very much what you were saying about gender differences in games and when uh, in, in game in types of game preferences. And I did when I was doing my PhD, I did I did work where we were like really investigating what games children all across the Netherlands were playing, and we saw gen like gender differences and even within the video game space that mm. that align very much with what you're saying. But I still think that being said. Um, there are, there is, I think, a lot more of an overlap in what boys and girls both find fun and engaging. That's that's easy to overlook. So yes, the, the boys might be more into like more aggressive and competitive experiences than girls, and girls might be a little bit more interested in uh, like sort of, um, well, essentially like the kind of like the digital version of a, of a dollhouse or the digital version of playing house in like a role playing type of scenario than boys. Like yeah. something that we observed uh, with, with the kids we worked with in, in, when I was doing my research in Holland. But what I also observed is that like when you have a game mechanic, which is interesting for, 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 for the, the, that's intuitively interesting for somebody, it doesn't matter their gender. So for example, the thing that we saw that stuck out very strongly and we tried to like bring it to bear in, in, our, in, in our designs, the thing that was very strong that didn't matter about gender was for kids in our age range of nine to 11, the sort of the mechanic of what's behind the corner, what's the next thing that's going to happen? And mm -hmm. is it gonna be good or is it gonna be bad? Every, all the kids tap into that. And it, it, for, for kids within that age range, like the idea of it, if, if that sort of game was being played on something that was like three or four turns in the future, it didn't resonate as much because kids are so much more, especially in that age range, are so much more in the moment. They're not thinking so far down the line. But when it's that stack of cards and, you know, 80% of the cards are good, but 20% of them are bad, like they're going to have a negative consequence and they understand the negative consequence, just the, 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 the feeling of going to flip the card from the deck or, you know, you're playing Jenga and you're taking off that one little yeah. piece, that feeling resonates with everybody regardless of gender. And I'm confident that there are many other mechanics and, like, ways that games are designed that are, 
you know, trans, you know, trans, transgender, you know, like they, that are, that, that, that are not, are not, you know, gender specifically interesting. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, for me, that's, um, you're, you're talking about curiosity and a brilliant mm -hmm. example of emotional regulation. So quite for, for example, on gender, I will, I will make noises, you know, when I'm with the child and I'll go, oh, oh, and, and it's all about, actually, this is about expectations. Um, so it's, you, you have like a, a neural expectation, but you also have this cognitive expectation and the marrying of them together is, it's wonderful to actually get children to play kind of through that process and then ask them afterwards, you know, how was that? What was, ex what was it? And you'll find exciting, fun, uh, all the words that you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm so excited about actually this this just cements so so much for me what I'm doing as a therapist actually is about working with these children and actually that that idea of just around the corner what you did what you did do then was you sparked off um, I've actually said to Tony I'm gonna speak to him again at some point about flow because I'm really interested in um, children in flow when mm -hmm. they're using games because that mm -hmm. is in the here and now um, mm -hmm. And I found myself doodling on the whiteboard the other week about where it was in terms of uh, nervous system regulation, where it is in terms of cognitive. And I think that's one of the things that um, might be another one of <laughs> might be another one of my projects that I'm, I'm going to look at. But mm -hmm. that, that's going to be really interesting in terms of where we are in, in gaming, because I know that um, there is a company at the moment who's looking at the flow uh, with gamers, but they're doing it with adults by the sound of it, not children. So. Oh. I'm, like I'm a, hoping like a site, like an educational psychoeducational company or a, or a commercial. Uh, no, no, it's a gaming, it's a gaming company. Okay. Um, uh, and, uh, I, I want to get, I want to get in touch with it, which is why I'm not saying the name at the minute. Um, I'm going to okay. try and get in touch with them cause I'm really interested in how are they measuring it? Mm -hmm. Cause I'd like to be able to do it with the, with the kids here and ask them questions and well, build up a bank of information. When you find out, I'll be curious too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you after. I'll tell you after the podcast. <laughs> right. Um, and and talking of which, uh, we've been going for about an hour. So I did. Yep. So we, wow. we with, with the little blip in the middle, but that's okay because I paused it and then we started again. Okay. Well, yeah. Sorry again about that. And uh, yeah, it wouldn't be right to to end this call without me saying I really think you're doing amazing work. And when I was in the, the Netherlands and I was, uh, you know an advocate for getting games implemented more in therapy. You know, it wasn't something that I got to push hard enough on and or, or and it's just great for me to see people like you out there involving games and therapy, involving video games and therapy. So I think you're doing great work. It's a real pleasure to oh, thank you. Thank you. Um I, I think it's just so that I get to play all day. <laughs> <laughs> I, there is there is a method yeah i have an ulterior motive and it's so that when i'm not on the games console or messing about at home i'm doing something here now actually i'm i'm being really good at the moment and doing uh, uh, much more writing okay so, yeah right okay uh anything else you want to say and what um i will obviously put your uh twitter handle in the show notes if that's okay with you so that people can contact so, yeah, you um you obviously if they... you channel as well why not uh, yeah, yeah, I'll stick that one in. Um, yeah, because I think what was the what was the one that I quite liked was when you did your talk on uh, fact, fiction, or myth, wasn't it? Oh yeah, that yeah, that one's fun. that one's a nice one. I think that that will help people because you do you do talk about kind of the myths that we have around gaming, and and that's actually what I'm trying to do with this set of episodes mm -hmm. is kind of take out the myth behind. You know, games are not these horrid things. They they have a really good motive. 
Well, shameless self-plug, I think that if people want to like read about that a little bit more, um, my PhD thesis is called Game On, and I love showing the book because the art is so fantastic. It Let's is, see. isn't it? Yes, it's. Yeah, I have the, somebody named David Nash did it for me. Anyway, um, the second chapter of this book is a review that I wrote together with Isabel and my other PhD supervisor, Rutger, and the, it's called The Benefits of Playing Video Games. And it's all about sort of laying out from a traditional psychology standpoint and also based off of sort of like <clears> the, it's a few years old now, but at the time sort of like all the research that was done on video games until then about, okay, let's make a case for the benefits of video games. And mm. it's a very, it's, it's an academic article, but I assure you it's very readable. It's, it's, it's very, I think it's very compelling. All thanks mostly to Isabel, who did most of the writing on it. And um, yeah, it's in here. You can find this on my Twitter page, etc. Blah blah blah. But it's called the benefits of playing video games, and it's the second chapter of this PhD thesis, which I wrote. And um, it's a great. If people are interested in the topic and want to immerse themselves in the kind of the starting point of the research, it's a. It really is a great review paper so check it out well i i think i will be asking you for a copy of that then because um anything i can get my hands on at the moment um because and this is what i was saying earlier a lot of it tends to be out in the the um us at the moment for a lot of this research so at the moment i'm scrabbling around and asking and begging people <laughs> so well, it's, it's, it's all online i can send you a link oh fabulous that would be oh that's brilliant i'll go and get some more ink when when we've done here i'm off to the shop to go and get some ink so i can print it out Okay. Right. Thank you ever so much for taking the time for this, Adam. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Best of luck.